0: So we're back in the book of John today, uh, excuse me, 1st John, which is a letter written by the Apostle John, who is one of Jesus' closest friends, confidants, disciples, who went on to write a large chunk of the, of the New Testament. He's an important character, and, and we've been making our way through his letter that he wrote to a group of churches in Asia Minor. And today we're coming to the final chapter, chapter 5, so if you have a Bible, Uh, open it up to chapter 5. If you don't, there are Bibles uh, you'll see at the end of your row on the ground. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those. It's a gift from us to you. Of course, we'll assume if you're looking on your phone that you've looked up the scripture for today on your phone. You'll also find the scripture printed in your bulletin. So we've got lots of ways for you to follow along with us. Um, The more you engage with the text, the more you will get out of it. I believe that with all my heart, so we really want you to be reading along with us as we go through the passage. Now at this point in John's letter, we are familiar with uh, what scholars like to call the three tests that we see in 1 John, and he's sort of been cycling through these again and again, and so we've heard them a couple of times, and the three tests for true children of God are this. One, obedience. Two, love for one another. And three, belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh. Now each of these tests relates to the other in that they are all signs of a new kind of birth that has occurred in the individual. John says it this way often, that we are born of God. And why is new birth so important? Because it literally changes our ontological standing with God. That is to say, it changes our relational stance before God. So now God views us as part of his family. We do life together his way. And Christ is now for us as our kin. Before our birth into the family of God, we did not have Christ but now, we have Him. So today, we are going to see why having Christ is so significant. Why it's utterly consequential. Why it's unmatched in its importance. Having Christ. So read with me. Starting in 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? "'Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. "'This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, "'not by water only, but by the water and the blood. "'And the Spirit is the one who testifies, "'because the Spirit is the truth. "'For there are three that testify, "'the Spirit and the water and the blood.' And these three agree. If we, were, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son." And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you've given us your word, that you've communicated truth to us, that you've inspired the writing of this book through the Holy Spirit as He worked on and worked with the human authors, that we've had it preserved for us for all these centuries, and that we can come to it, and that through the Spirit you illuminate it so that we might understand what you are trying to say to us. So we pray tonight that you would be in this room, that you would help us to see and hear that everything that is from you would stick with us and everything that's not would pass away quickly. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So look again and read with me verse 13. John is describing the whole purpose of why he's written this letter and this is what he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know, that you may be confident in what? That you have eternal life. It struck me this week as I studied this passage that there's actually nothing more important than having eternal life. There's nothing more important than having eternal life. We can get distracted from this point, but we must come back to it. There is nothing more important than having eternal life. And that is why John has written this letter to the churches, to remind them. The first time I think that I really, fully, truly grasped how important having eternal life actually was, was March seventeenth, two 2007. That is the day that my older sister Kim was killed in a bicycling accident, that is the day that it finally sunk in. And I'd grown up in the church and I'd believed and I'd confessed in Jesus, but I hadn't grasped the importance of having eternal life. If you've ever lost somebody close to you, if you've ever watched somebody slip away from life, if maybe you're wrestling right now through that with someone you love, then you know there is nothing more important than having eternal life. Why? Because death comes for us all. Friends, I pray that if nothing else, at the end of tonight, you have a renewed sense that there is nothing more important than having eternal life. Summertime is filled with subtle deceptions, right? Let me give you an example. We begin to think more about our bodies, don't we? We start asking the question, how does my tan look? We start asking the question, am I pudgy in any parts? Is my beach body ready for action? Some of you saw that mine was not today at Sunday morning volleyball. (laughs) I apologize. But here's the deal. We begin to actually think these things matter. Our tan, our beach body But when you look in the mirror tomorrow morning, I hope what you think to yourself is not, man, how's my tan doing? How's my skin? Is it sleek? How's my beach body? But that you remember the person that maybe you lost, the person that maybe is fighting for their life right now, and you remember this one fact. It doesn't make any difference how good your tan is. It doesn't make any difference what your body looks like. If you don't have eternal life. That final morning before my sister Kim went out on her bike ride. It didn't matter if she had a good tan. It didn't make any difference at all if she had a body that was ready for the beach. The only thing that mattered that morning was that she had eternal life. Because she didn't come back from her bike ride. But she had eternal life. And having eternal life is so important because it means that we have the Son of God. And if we have the Son of God, who is Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, then we have life. That's what John tells us. For Christ is life in himself. There's nothing more important, friends, than having eternal life. I might just say it over and over and over again because, to be honest, I forget this all the time. I get distracted. I get off on some tangent. And I forget that there's nothing of higher priority. There's nothing of more primacy than the reality of eternal life. There's nothing. There's nothing. And it's so easy to get caught up in the secondary issues, which aren't unimportant. They're important only because they feed the truth of helping people, helping us to grasp and have eternal life. Things like community, things like love for one another, things like the meaning of life. All these things are important, but they pale in comparison to having eternal life. And I fear that this particular point is lost, particularly on a group like this because we're so young, because our tans are good and our skin does look good. And when we go in for a health checkup, Everything is clear. The idea of death is as far away as the moon. And so we do not think about eternal life nearly enough. Why? Because we're young, and that's something that old people deal with. The problem is, friends, the death is a moment away from each of us, and it's a moment away from everybody that we love. We don't get to decide. So the question is not a future question that we'll ask when we get there, but it's a present question, the question of the moment, do we have eternal life? And John is going to explain to us how we can know that we do. But before we get there, I think we need to understand what is eternal life. We throw it around, at least in Christian circles, but I think it needs explaining And here's the surprising part. What John teaches and what Scripture teaches is not that eternal life is just longevity of life. Or life without an ending point. Although that's a part of eternal life. I'll call that everlasting life. And the interesting thing that you may not know is that everlasting life is promised to everyone. Everyone. Christians, non-Christians, those who confess Jesus, those who obey, obey his commands, those who don't. It is promised to everyone. So I don't want us to be confused. When John talks about having eternal life, he is not only talking about life to come after death. Because that's actually something that is promised to everyone. But the Bible teaches that there are actually several kinds of life after death. In fact... In fact, everyone will experience a resurrection. We talk about that a lot as Christians. Everyone will experience a resurrection. The problem is, some will be raised to one kind of life, and some will be raised to another kind of life. And not all life after death is created equal. That makes sense, right? We realize intuitively that even life now, is not created equal and you know what in the life to come life won't be created equal so what is this eternal life and what it teaches in the book of first john and elsewhere is that the eternal life is none other than jesus christ himself turn back with me a couple pages to the very beginning of the letter first john chapter one and it says this 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Remember? This was a while ago that we were here, but he says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of what? Life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal Life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You see what he's doing? He's personifying eternal life. And who is it? That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and who? With his Son, Jesus Christ, who is eternal life, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now flip back to chapter 5, verse 11, and he says the same thing. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life, and he's using life in the shorthand, this eternal life is in his son. The point is this, eternal life isn't some nebulous thing. Eternal life is a person and his name is Jesus And John is saying you can have eternal life if you have Jesus. The problem is, if you don't have Jesus, you do not have this kind of life. You will have life, the Bible will tell us, but you will not have eternal life, which is only found in Jesus. So this begs the question then, what will a truly godless, Christless life look like in perpetuity? Because we will have that if we do not have Christ, what will it look like, what will it feel like, what will it be like? Jesus and the other biblical authors, they have things to say about that life, and they use word pictures to help us understand that it's not something we really want to flirt with. But here's another way to think about it. Are you so convinced that a Christless eternity is an eternity that you want to be a part of? Are you satisfied with the amount of consideration that you've done about whether or not Jesus is who he said he is? Or is this kind of everlasting life something you want those you love to participate in? Are you willing to roll those kind of dice? That's the question. And the bottom line is this. These questions about a, Christ, a, a, a eternity full of Christ and His presence versus a Christless eternity. You don't have Christ by just being scared of the Christless eternity. That's not what I'm saying. But what you can do as you consider what would a Godless, Christless eternity be like, it can trouble you so much that you do what. It troubles you so much that you begin to consider whether or not it's true, whether or not Jesus is who he said he was, whether or not Jesus is somebody worthy to confess as Lord and Savior. And the other thing should happen. It should trouble us so much, the idea that perhaps we have an eternity without God and Christ, that it should multiply our conversations on the topic On the topic of what? Avoidance or embrace of Jesus Christ. You see that? Because having eternal life is that important. So, back to the text. What you probably heard, hopefully you heard it, was these words like testify and witness... And all of this should conjure up in us, particularly if we were reading this in John's original context that he was writing to, uh, the idea of the courtroom. Verse 7 says this, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now what is so powerful about this is that in the Mosaic law, which is the Old Testament law, which is what the people of God, Israel, Israel, Uh, Used to govern their affairs, it said that you had to have two or three witnesses in order to convict someone or in order to exonerate them. So John is recalling uh, that paradigm as he says to the people, There are three witnesses that testify to what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh. There are three witnesses. And there's much debate about this passage, it's actually one of the more perplexing passages in the New Testament. And so, I won't say it with absolute certainty, but there is a consensus, it would seem, amongst modern scholars that what the water and the blood are, are indicators in Jesus' life that showed or proved that he was the Christ, come from God in the flesh. The water, being his baptism... Which right before he began his earthly ministry, he was baptized by John the Baptist. And it says, something like a dove came from heaven and a voice was heard, this is my son to whom I am well pleased. And Jesus goes out and he does his earthly ministry. And that is the first testimony that Jesus is the Christ, son of God, come in the flesh. And the second is the blood. What is the blood? It is Jesus' death, <coughs> shedding, of a blood, shedding of his blood on the cross. Now, this is so important in this context, I'll just explain it very, very quickly, is that, remember we have false teachers here, excuse me, false teachers were claiming that what had happened was Jesus was born a regular human. At his baptism, which is the water, the Spirit of God came upon him, which was the spirit The Christ came upon him, the Messiahship. And then before Jesus died, the Spirit left him. And so it was not the Christ who died on the cross, but it was just normal Jesus. Now we know that now, uh, or we should know that, that that's not true. And so look at what John says in in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. And he says this. Not by water only. Why? Because that's what the cessationists were teaching, the false teachers. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. So what he's saying is, we know, we can agree that, yes, uh, at Jesus' baptism was a special moment that marked his uh, messiahship, which is to say he is the Christ. But the Spirit did not leave at the blood, at the coming of the blood... Because Jesus, the Christ, died for us. And this is so important because, as we've seen before, the false teachers were claiming that they were without sin, not needing the atoning work of the sacrifice of Christ. Which would explain why they were teaching that actually the Christ left Jesus before the crucifixion. But no, that's actually the whole point of why Jesus came. To die in our place. So that is the, three, the two witnesses, the water and the blood, and the third is the spirit, which we talked about last week, is the spirit of truth, which testifies to the whole shebang that Jesus was born, conceived of, through the Holy Spirit, so he was actually born the Christ, confirmed at his baptism, present in the crucifixion, and then, of course, powerfully Um in the resurrection, three days later. Does that make sense? It's a complex, interesting passage, but that's basically what John is saying. And so, as the early church grappled with the heretics of various sorts, one orthodox truth truth rose uh, from all that controversy, Controversy, and we're united absolutely on the necessity of what? The full deity of Christ, he is fully God, and the full humanity of Christ, he was fully man. Together, united in the person. Because why? Because only God can save us from ourselves. So, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, then the testimony of God is greater. What is he saying? He's saying this. The other important thing in a court of law, besides having two or three witnesses, was the character of the witnesses. Right? This makes sense. It still makes sense to us today. And John is saying, You have the testimony of men, yeah, that works. But isn't the testimony of God even more powerful? Because the character of God is the character of truth. There can be no error in God. And so he draws them into the argument which is, who is it that testifies on Christ's behalf? Not just men, but God himself. And he does that through the Spirit as the Spirit convicts us in our heart of who Jesus Christ actually is. And what we have to do is allow him to speak honestly, which, as I said before, is to honestly consider, is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? So in this passage, we have these several heavy-handed allusions to the courtroom, to witnesses and testimonies, to confessions and verdicts, that Jesus is incarnate God come in the flesh And in the fulcrum of this courtroom scene, and I want us to try to put ourselves into the courtroom, uh, John tells us that the most important thing in the courtroom is this, having the Son of God sitting at our bench. Having the Son of God. Look at verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. What is John saying? What does it mean to have something? Well, have can have several connotations. Think of it. Having a dollar bill. Having a cold. Having a lawyer. Each of these conveys something of a nuance of what it means to have, but they have one thing in common. That is, when you have something, It does its thing for you. So if I have a dollar, it buys a dollar's worth of goods for me. If I have a cold, it makes my nose run. It does its thing. If I have a lawyer, he stands up in a court of law for me. Having something means that it does its thing for you. So as I was researching, I came across an illustration to this old uh, book. And this old movie. The book was written in 1924. And the film was in 1984. And you may have heard of it. It's a classic novel called A Passage to India. Crickets. Nobody's heard of it. Okay. That's okay. It's based in the early 19th, uh, excuse me, 20th century in India when the British ruled over the Indian people, right? And um, basically what happens in the story is there's this doctor, Dr. Aziz, and he's incredibly infatuated with the British and he wants to be like the British and he takes a liking to two travelers who come in uh, to town and uh, he begins to spend time with them and he takes them on an adventure into these caves up in the hills in northern India. And uh, as the story goes, what happens is he finds himself alone with this young English woman, and something happens, and nobody else is there to see it, and she ends up accusing uh, him. She's confused herself, uh, but accusing him, and he gets convicted, or excuse me, accused and arrested uh, for sexual assault. And because of the situation of the time, the tension between the British and the uh, Indians, Uh, what happens is uh, it's kind of a sham trial that's thrown together and they want to get the conviction quickly Um, and Dr. Aziz is is basically out on his luck. He's going to get convicted. Everybody knows it. He doesn't have enough money to afford a good lawyer. They're going to railroad him all the way to conviction when all of a sudden he's sitting with two of his friends and they get a phone call sitting in jail. And the best-known lawyer in all of India is on the other line. And he says, I'm going to take your case. And he says, free of charge. Free of charge. Well, what's so powerful about that? Dr. Aziz now has a lawyer. Has a lawyer. He has a lawyer. And not only that, he has the best lawyer in all of India. And this lawyer has a reputation for hating the British. That's part of why he's taken the case. And he comes and he sits next uh, to the defendant in the courtroom. And Dr. Aziz says, I have a lawyer. Now, what's interesting is that the motivation of the lawyer... Is not to make money. He really doesn't actually... uh, His highest motivation is not for Dr. Aziz because he doesn't know him. He's from a completely different part of the country. He's never met the man. His motivations are this. The liberation of India from uh, Britain and the magnification of his own legal skills. That's the lawyer's uh, primary motivations. But what's so interesting is that even though his motivation is not necessarily in his personal relationship at the time with Dr. Aziz, is that it ends up leading to Dr. Aziz's freedom. So how does the doctor come to have this lawyer? Well, first, the lawyer has to make the free offer. Then the doctor has to hear the offer and accept it. Then the doctor has to trust that the lawyer has his best interest in mind, and the doctor must believe that the lawyer has the skill necessary to clear his name. So what is this? This is trust. And only in trusting the lawyer is the doctor now having the lawyer. And there's three alternative options that can happen in this scenario. He could get the phone call hear that the lawyer wants to come and defend him for free, and he can what? Reject the offer and say, I'll defend myself. This would be falling uh, falling into the trap of pride. The second alternative is he could get the phone call and the free offer, and he could discard the offer. Why? Because he feels unworthy of such an offer. This is falling into the trap of self-loathing. But the lawyer would respond in that case, I didn't come because you are somebody. I came because I am somebody. The third option. The doctor could accept the offer but refuse to cooperate. Which is what? He could accept the bail but refuse the advice. This is a half-hearted alternative. Alternative. And each of them show one critical error, and it's in the category of trust. But if the doctor receives the offer, accepts the offer, and then trusts fully in the advice of the lawyer, we have a truly amazing relationship which leads to freedom. Now, Dr. Aziz ends up getting freed. But by now, of course, you've realized that my main concern concern is not a fictional character, in a 1924 novel, but of course, that Jesus Christ Himself is the good lawyer. That, as the Apostle Paul tells us, that if we choose to take His call, if we choose to accept His free defense of us, if we realize. That it's not because I am somebody, but because he is somebody, and we accept fully what he has to offer, and that we don't just accept in part what he offers, but the whole thing and every piece of advice he gives us, then we actually have our good lawyer, who is the Son of God, through our trust in him, who's him, Jesus Christ. He is our good lawyer. And what having him means is that, hey, just, just remember this. His primary goal is the liberation of this world from the enemy that is oppressing us. And his secondary motivation is his magnification and glorification of his own self, his own skill, his own glory. But it always leads to our good. So here's the very odd courtroom scene that we find ourselves in. Now, in our situation, we are already guilty. We are already guilty. Each and every one of us are guilty, and we've already been sentenced, and the sentence is death. So we're sitting on death row. I want you to just pull yourself into this odd courtroom scene. We're already on death row when we get the phone call that there's this lawyer who wants to take up our case. We don't know him. He calls out of the blue. He wants to take our case. And you know what? He wants to take it pro bono. He says, we say, don't you know that this, it, we've already been sentenced? We're, we're on death row. Well, I want to take your case, he says. He brings us into the courtroom for an appeal. There's no jury of our peers. It's just us the judge and our lawyer and our lawyer calls three witnesses to the stand the water the blood and the spirit and the odd thing about this defense strategy is that none of the witnesses say anything about us they only talk about our lawyer See how odd this is? They don't say anything about good things that we've done or nice things or our kindness or where we've given our money or anything. They just keep talking about our lawyer. You see how odd this is? They keep saying how great our lawyer is and what he's done. That he's come by the water and the blood and the spirit comes and he testifies. The water tells of the inaugurating ministry of our lawyer how it empowered him to do such great things. And then the blood comes up and he talks about our lawyer and how our lawyer died on the cross. And then the Spirit comes and talks about everything that Jesus is, our lawyer. Why is he talking about the lawyer? What about me? I'm the one on death row. But then our lawyer turns to the judge. And he looks the judge square in the eye. And he utters two powerful war, two powerful words, and he says, "Double jeopardy." I say what? My client, who has me. My client, who has me. You can't try him for this. Why? Because you just heard the witnesses. I've already paid the penalty. I am the good lawyer. I've already laid down my life. It's already been settled. No double jeopardy. And the judge looks at the lawyer. And he looks at the defendant. And he slams his gavel. Case dismissed. You're free to go. Jesus is the good lawyer. It has nothing to do with us. Our resume doesn't matter. The alternative is to parade a bunch of character witnesses into the courtroom that talk about this one time he did this for me, and this other time he saved a dog from drowning. And we go through the list of things, and at the end, what does the judge say? But who do you say Jesus Christ is? And we say, well, he ain't the Son of God. And the judge looks at us and he says what? Look at verse 10. Whoever does not believe and confess has what? Made God a liar. We look at the judge and we call him a liar while we're sitting on the stand. And it doesn't matter how many character witnesses we bring because we've called God a liar. That's the unforgivable sin, friends. Nothing else is unforgivable but to sit and look to your right at the judge and say, excuse me, sir, you are a liar. There's no freedom there. So here's the implications The implications of our release when we do what? When we say, I have no case, but I have a good lawyer. Here's the implications. One, look at verse 13 of uh, chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life when we know that we have eternal life, when we know that we have the good lawyer on our side, there's what? There's no fear. That's the first implication. There is absolutely no fear. Look back one chapter and read with me, starting in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now here's where it gets terrific. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for what? The day of judgment Because as he is, so also are we in the world. Look at it. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Why? For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Here is what John is saying. The reason that we fear... Is because we know explicitly or implicitly that judgment is coming, that there is a day of judgment, and punishment is a very, very real possibility, and so we fear. But when we walk into the courtroom, and who's on our right side? The one who has taken the punishment, the Son of God, eternal life, the good lawyer, we do not fear. Because we see Jesus for who he actually is, and the fear of punishment is expelled from us. In fact, the fear is now, the fear has always been, the fear will be in our life a constant companion if we don't know Jesus. Because we have no idea what's going to happen on that day. But we have Jesus, friends. We have him. He is ours. We have accepted his call. If we confess him, he, we, we have him. And so we can know with, way, with, with unwavering assurance that the verdict has already been decided and the verdict is life. And life to the full. Not half life, but full life. Not half joy, but full joy. Our crimes and our related sentence have already been paid for in full by what? His blood. It's a done deal. The Spirit confirms it in our hearts and our lives, and we can have assurance knowing that we have eternity with God. This is our justification. That is the term that's used. This is our justification. That's the first implication. The second implication is that now realizing, now realizing that our defense, which is Jesus Christ himself, what our defense has won for us, what should we then do? If, if this is true, if, if the court says you're free to go, what should we do? Should we keep on sinning, living the life as, we, as we've always lived? Of course not. Something's got to change. If we truly know what's happened to us, if we truly know what Christ has done for us, if we truly know that our only defense was actually our lawyer, then what should we do? We change the way we live. We stop living in the ways of the world. John says that earlier in the the letter. And we start living in the ways of Christ. We fully embrace it because, look at this, Because eternal life doesn't start when we die. It starts right now. As soon as we realize the truth of this, as soon as we accept the call of the good lawyer, as soon as we realize that the verdict is sealed, eternity, eternal life starts right now. And we start living with, having, day by day, moment by moment, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, even now. And what does it do? What would John say? We can all say it. It results in belief, obedience, and love for one another. This is our trust. This is a life lived trusting the good lawyer. Trusting all the advice that he gives us. And friends, this is our sanctification. Which is to say, our maturing in who we now are. Finally. The third implication, someone at some point in our life will ask us this question, do you know, I'm not going to say the muffin man, do you, (laughs) I had to say that louder or else I would have been thinking about it. Somebody at some point in our life will ask you this question, friends, do you know a good lawyer? When they ask you this question, if you truly love them, you will not keep the name of Jesus away from them. You won't say, go look it up in a phone book, Google it, look at Yelp. You will give them the name of Jesus. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in what? The name of of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Do not keep the name of your good lawyer away from those that you love, be it friends, be it family, be it the stranger on the street who says, do you know a good lawyer? Yeah, I know the only lawyer that can help you with that thing that you think you'll never get off for. His name is Jesus. Now here's the deal. You give him his name, Not so that they can call him, but so that when he calls them, they won't hang up the phone. So that when he calls them, they'll be so happy that they got the call. So that when he calls them, they don't say, who? Who are you? I never heard about you. You tell them about your good lawyer so that when he calls them, they know exactly what to do, which is to accept his offer, to realize that it has nothing to do about them but it's all about him and to accept all the advice that he gives them. Shame on us. Shame on us if we don't freely give people the name of eternal life. Shame on us. Beg them to take his call. The good lawyer is their only and last chance at liberation, exoneration, And true life, which is life lived in Christ, this, friends, is our mission. Our justification tells us the verdict is sealed, our sanctification changes the way we live based on that verdict, and our mission is to not keep it to ourselves, but to tell everybody about this very odd courtroom that we've been a part of. Let's pray.